It is the Coot Street Podcast. Today with our special guest, Hugo Award-winning writer David Levine and Norton Award-winning writer Fran Wilde, both of whom have interesting, exciting new books out, both of which involve flying. And awesome. I'm going to start off with Fran because, Fran, you did a presentation on flying. I did. Which I couldn't get to because I was on another panel. But, oh, that's terrible. Oh, uh, it's terrible. But do you want me to do it now? No, don't do the whole presentation now because we want to talk to David about, <laughs> we want to talk about Arabella of Mars, we want to talk about Uplift, we want to talk about Cloudbound, uh, all of which are things we ought to think about for next year's awards season, I suppose. I bet you guys are thinking about that. I'm certainly thinking about awards season. Well, okay, let me start with Arabella of Mars, which is, let me see, is it concisely a Regency Martian romance? I call it a Regency Interplanetary Airship Adventure. Okay, that sounds fine to me. Um, yeah, that's that's the elevator picture. You're trying right to win the award for most syllables? Huh? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit worried about the title of book two, which is um, Arabella and the Battle of Venus, oh. which takes up half a tweet all by itself. No, but that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, I like the sound of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, titles are hard. We could just call it B.O.V. for short. Yeah, or Battle of Venus. Yeah. yeah or the ha- hashtag A.B.O.V. Titles are hard. Yeah. They're totally hard. Updraft so, had, like, nine titles. I was, I was going to ask where you got from that, because that could be an aviation novel, which it sort of is, I guess. It could be a World War II novel. It could be a meteorological novel. It could be a storm chaser novel. Mm-hmm. But it's a science fiction novel. Sort of. Oh, there you go. That was like the gauntlet thrown yeah, right down right, there, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, right there, wasn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not answering that. On the other hand, I can answer the question about the title. Okay, answer, answer the question about the title. Um, I think that, I mean, the, the, the short story is that the title mm-hmm. was brought to me by Patrick Nielsen Hayden mm-hmm. um, at the, uh, the, the bar event in New York. He swam up to you with Well, no, we had been through uh-huh. a several dozen million titles for the book. The book was sold as Bone Arrow. Mm-hmm. And this was in a year when the Bone Clocks were coming out and about nine other, uh, 900 other books with Bone in the title. Mm-hmm. And, we, and my editor, Miriam Weinberg, and I went through a number of different choices trying to figure out what the right title was. And we listed a lot of different options um, as far as words that were important to the book. Updraft was one of those options. Um, but there, there's a funny story involving a car ride with Gregory Frost and Michael Swamwick, and, uh-huh. um, and uh, I'm not going to tell that one. But <laughs> it was, um, it was, it was pointed out to me um, at the what is called the Millenswill, uh, which is the bar event in New York um, every year that Sifo sponsors. That um, I had chosen the wrong title, and I should be using the title Updraft, which does reflect the winds. Uh-huh. Um, and Patrick pointed this out to me, and I said yes immediately. And it was in part because this, the, when somebody else said the title to me, it sounded wonderful. And the first time I read from the book after it had its proper title was at ICFA that year. Oh, that year. I and, remember that. And I hit the word updraft and just started smiling. And I knew it, he was, it, Patrick. It oh, you was, found the word in the text. Oh, yeah. No, mm-hmm. I read a section that just, out because the word comes up a lot where, where because you're looking for updrafts. Oh, yeah, exactly. And the taller towers generate their own updrafts. Mm-hmm. So that's part of um, what's sort of the natural elements of the book, whether it be sci-fi or fantasy. I had a tough time coming up with the title for Arabella. Um, it was a working title when I was writing it was Arabella's Airship Adventure with an exclamation point, but that was too middle grade. Um, and then when I submitted it, I used the title Arabella and the Marsman, but of course everybody thought that a Marsman was a person and not a ship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so and the I, ship's name is the Diana, so the that would have been confusing. Yeah, and then there's uh, and then there it was Arabella and the Mars captain for a while, and then finally it came down to a choice of Arabella of Mars, which I thought just sort of lay there, and uh, a passage to Mars. And it came down to which is going to be, which do I want to be more suggestive of? Do you want to be more suggestive of of, uh, Burroughs or Forster? Uh And really, Forster's kind of a downer. Forster. Yeah, Yeah. there's no sense of adventure in in, in Forster. So (laughs) I said, okay, I'll go along with Arabella of Mars. And I've really grown to love the title since then. Uh, book That's, two. I, I feel the same way. This is this is the well, title for yeah. my book. The thing that interested me, though, because Arabella of Mars is now we're dealing with Tor, which is a brand that's associated with science fiction and mm-hmm. fantasy. Arabella of Mars, to me, says this is well. First of all, because the name Arabella, which I'm assuming is deliberately a little bit archaic sounding. Yes. And so, it, but it says science fiction, and it says a certain kind of science fiction. Yeah. 
Updraft, as I said earlier, could yeah. mean any number of things. Yes, it could. So it's. Uh, Isn't that amazing how that yeah. works? I mean, it, it, but that's the thing. Do you want an ambiguous title so that non-science fiction readers can accidentally pick it up and then think, oh, oh, it's a science fiction. I might as well go ahead with it. <laughs> or do you want an amb- a, a science fiction novel so that you know immediately that the readers you're going to get are readers of a certain stripe? I think you absolutely want a title that, that says what kind of book it is in very unambiguous terms. Yeah. Oh, Unless yeah. the book itself is ambiguous. Good answer. I think um, when you have a series, especially mm-hmm. a series of novels, you've also got to think about how those titles work in conjunction with each other. Mm-hmm. So the, sto- the story that the titles tell across the books is important. So I've got That's true. Updraft, Cloudbound, and then Horizon is going to be the third book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives you sort of the idea of Updraft is going up, Cloudbound is really going down, and then Horizon is sort of looking out wow. towards the future. That's yeah. clever. I mean, you have to know the universe to understand that Cloudbound means down. Yes. But if yes. you've read the first book, then you'll understand it. Yes. Yeah. And it really does have an, a very important meaning. Yeah. My book, too, uh, was titled Arabella and the Pirates of Venus, but the pirates actually wound up getting written out, so it's now called Arabella and the Battle of Venus. And I've always Ah. said that book one is Mars, book two is Venus, and book three is Earth, and it's the strangest of all. Working title for book three is Arabella and the Regent of Earth, but I'm not happy with that because it doesn't have the right mouthfeel. It's not crisp. It's Mm -hmm. mushy. Mm -hmm. Arabella and the Prince Regent is a lot crisper. It ends on that hard note. But it doesn't say science fiction. Yeah. So I'm still, no. cast, I'm still casting about for the right. I'm still casting about for the right title for book three. Um, possibilities include um, Arabella and the Transit of Venus. Uh, sorry, Arabella and the Transit of Mercury, mm-hmm. um, and Arabella and the Liberation of Mars. Uh, but that's both a spoiler for the ending of the book, and also I really want the three books to be Mars, Venus, Earth. Right. Uh-huh. I have a question because we're still talking about titles, but Nancy, right. Nancy Crest told me once um, that you really want to end things on a, a, a bang. So uh-huh. every every um, chapter ending ends on a bang. Every paragraph ends on a bang. You really want to end on on that striking note. So you're talking about structurally, not pronunciation. Well, and and both. Uh-huh. You don't yeah. want it to dribble off in, in structurally or or in tone or tense or anything. And I wonder if that works for titles yeah. as well, because the strongest titles that I can think of are often Often the ones that have that drop at the end that is really solid. Updraft ends with a. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that Updraft um, does um, end with with a tight note. It doesn't. The, the S titles it, sometimes it drift off. off. Yeah. Um, no, it's. Uh, so when you, I mean, and that's tough yeah. because when you've got Mars, Mars, do, Mars is a nice short word. It's a single syllable. Yeah, yeah. Mars. Mar, I mean, I mean, it ends with that z sound, which is a little bit mushy. But the word Mars is nice yeah. and crisp. Do you guys actually think about the consonants that your titles end with? I once the, wrote an essay looking at Eileen Gunn's table of contents as ah. part. So I'm, I'm completely able to think about the the consonants in a title. Yeah. Well, there's a structural thing you mentioned, and there's a term which. I know John Clute uses, and I know it's in the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, but I'm pretty sure he didn't coin the term, which is the slingshot ending, yes. which has to deal with not, it's not a cliffhanger ending. It's an ending that implies you haven't seen any part of the story yet, you don't know what's going on. The classic cliffhanger ending with uh, some of the classics are James Blish's, probably The Triumph of Time. The idea that what you what concludes the novel also explodes the reader's expectations yes. of what might right. come next. And when that really works, you get that feeling of, oh my God, I have to go back and read it from the beginning, yes. knowing exactly, what I know now. Yep. exactly. You know, and and you know, even if you don't actually do that, having that feeling is great. Yeah, uh, both of you started off writing. A number of short stories, very good short stories, well-received short stories. And David, you had a book of short stories out. I'm going to say ten years ago, 2009. Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. 2009. 2009. Yeah. Uh, Maybe. And, and I didn't have enough short stories yet, but they're yeah. coming. But uh, they're I coming. Well, I, I guess my my question is, uh, there's a contrast here because, uh, Fran, you had you're right. Not a lot of short stories. One of them really became what is now going to be three novels. Yes. David, you had a lot of short stories, but Arabella of Mars was a long time coming. Yes, yeah, it took me... I mean, I started uh, I started writing uh, in about 
after after taking a long time off, like twenty years twenty years off, uh-huh. because I was a technical writer in my day job and fiction writing was too much like work. Um, <laughs> when I changed careers from technical writing to software engineering, I became able to write fiction again. Uh, I started writing again in ninety eight ninety nine. I went to Clarion in two thousand. Started selling two thousand one. Um, and round about 2006, I said, okay, I've, I've laid down a pretty good base on the short fiction. Um, and even at that point, I was already noticing that novels got a lot more attention than short fiction. That's and, true. And I said, and I said, okay, yeah, it's time to start writing a novel. So I wrote my first novel, um, and it, w- it was it got really good feedback from the betas. Uh-huh. Um, and I thought, okay, you know, I've been I've been doing this short fiction thing for quite a while. I got I got at this point I had a Hugo under my belt, yeah. um, and and I didn't anticipate I would have any difficulty selling that first novel and. The that Hugo, that well, the Hugo's for Tick Tick Tick. I love that yeah. story. That's a great story. And thank you. And uh, and I didn't anticipate I would have any difficulty selling a novel on the basis of Hugo. And the thing is, the Hugo got me in. The Hugo, the Hugo, got me uh, requests for full uh, from uh-huh. agents and editors. But the Hugo itself was not enough to sell the novel. The novel itself had to do had to do that. And so. Uh, I wrote um, I wrote four unsold well three unsold novels before the fourth one sold uh-huh. um, and so it I, from beginning to write my first novel to the for, to the fourth one that I wrote actually appearing was ten years huh. 2006 to 2016. So my first published stories were in 2011. Holy cow! Um, and that I, I got that sort of infamously busted for checking my email during a coffee clutch with Wendy Duncan <laughs> because I, I checked my email and there was an acceptance note from Nature in there, and that oh, was cool. one of my first three stories. Short stories were Flash mm-hmm. short stories, and Nature is a great market for science fictional Flash. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, mm-hmm. I sold to Asimov's and I sold to Venice Lisa Skies. But it was—it's been five years, maybe four years. Um, since I started, it's been five years since I started finishing my short stories, and four years since I started selling them. Well, we, we were talking to on an earlier podcast. We were talking to Kelly Robson, who's been selling for maybe two or three years. Yeah, now. and she's and, doing amazing. And she's doing amazingly well. And I wonder, David, maybe you're a generation back at back at the generation where you get some respect in the magazines, you get interest, exactly the career you talked about in novels, and now uh, it seems. A few stories in, and you're getting novel contracts. Well, so many people I know have gone straight. Most writers, numerically, I think, are natural novelists rather than natural short stories. Really? I keep talking to people who say, man, I can't write a short story to save my life. I know so many people who have never sold a short story, who've who've broken right in with novels. It is, in some ways, easier to break in with a novel Although it's harder to actually write one, but it's still it's easy. It seems to be easier to break in with a novel than 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 to break into short stories, and certainly much easier to get attention with a novel than with. Than oh, with so what is because I think that's interesting that you have us mm-hmm. both together because we're both very much hybrids. We're both we still write short stories and we write novels. Yeah, well, I haven't had a lot of time for short stories yeah. lately, but I, I still intend yes. to get back to them. Yeah, but your short stories are magical, so you'll okay. take right. Well, I mean, I had a conversation with uh, more than once with Tim Powers, who writes very, very few short stories. Yeah. You look at two two thin volumes, his entire output, mm-hmm. and his argument was uh, that he spends as much time doing yes. research on a short story for a fraction of what he's going to get for doing the same research on a novel, so why bother? The Absolutely. amount of research that went into Declare, thinking, yeah. thinking about that being compressed into a short story is really amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a writer like Neil Stevenson. I don't know if he's even published short fiction. Uh, oh, good question. But uh, He's probably one of those people that, is, that, that as soon as he starts writing it, it turns into another novel. I was going to say, a Neil Stevenson short story would be 350 pages. Yes. <laughs> I think that's Zodiac, actually. That's <laughs> probably, <laughs> that probably is his short story, yeah. Um, Sorry, Neil. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's fine. I'm sure he would agree. <laughs> but, I mean, it, 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 that's one of the things I'm interested in is where careers come from now because the venues for short fiction, first of all, it may be harder to write short fiction, but there are more places to publish it now than ever right before. Right now, yeah, yeah, even compared to five years ago. Mm. Yeah, because uh, the generation before yours, David, you know, you had basically a choice between analog, FNSF, and um, and, and Asimov. Yeah, and that was and now you don't have to break in one of the big three markets. And before Asimov's, the big three markets were Galaxy, FNSF, and Astounding, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So now it seems to me that. 
it might be easier to get more short stories published, but less easy to get people to pay attention to them. Because there are so many. Because there are so many of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Jonathan, who unfortunately can't be with us today because he's not in Columbus, is one of the people that I depend on for looking at short stories uh, in, in years' best anthologies and original fiction anthologies and theme anthologies and so forth and so on because uh, that's the only way I can keep up these it, days. It is an amazing feeling when, when something gets noticed. I mean, when, when Rich Horton um, mm-hmm. picked up The Jewel in Her Lapidary for Locust this year, I was screaming because that's never I've never had a recommended before from Locust. You've never had? No, and so um, that was that was really cool. And then um, a couple months later, uh, Only Their Shining Beauty Was Left came out in Shimmer. And that was a very different story from a very different market, but I'm hoping that people will, will see... Um, the, you know, just see like one story be recommended and go uh-huh. look for the others. I'm kind of hoping that that Hugo effect works backwards for short stories as well. It's called only no. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's this. Um, it's having a short story attract attention is very much like uh, for a video to go viral yeah. or for a tweet to go viral. That there's really no telling what makes it happen. Right. But once it happens, it tends to build on itself. You know, once a short story starts getting attention, you know, if, mm-hmm. it, if it manages to pick up a Nebula nomination, then it's much more likely to get serious consideration for the Hugo nomination and for right. the Locus. Uh, people may pick it up. It, it, you know, I mean, Nebula nominations for short stories are super hard, though, because there's, so there's so many, many of them. them. Yeah. Right. That's, oh. Yeah, that's and why... And novellas and novelettes, too, it's starting to really... Um, yeah, well, there are a lot more markets for novellas yeah. and novelettes than there were even a couple of years ago. Well, I think this is one of the things that happens with... Uh, probably more with the World Fantasy Awards because it's a juried award, basically, is that somebody has to read a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I've talked to Jonathan, I've talked to Rich, I've talked to Gardner about how do you go, and and, 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 and Paula and Ellen, all the people who do Year's Best Anthologies, they do an astonishing amount of reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and partly because doing that much short fiction reading, it's hard to keep up with the novels. Mm-hmm. And I have to review novels, so it's hard for me to keep up with short fiction. So basically, nobody can read competitively everything that comes up. Jonathan and I have said many times on the podcast that in the 50s, you could read every science fiction story published. Right. You could read all the magazines and all the novels. And today, no matter who claims to know what, um, because this comes up every year with the Locust Recommended Reading List, yeah. A bunch of people are recommending books that nobody else has read, and part of it is how convincing you are to the rest of us to look at that story. Yeah. Yeah, and this is why the reviewers are so important. Yeah. Because we've got, I mean, what we've got here, and this is, this is today is as applicable to novels as it is to short stories, is way too much good stuff to the point that instead of having publishers as gatekeepers, now the the reviewers and the recommenders are the gatekeepers. You know, how do you get the you know the fifty Amazon reviews you need to rise up to rise out of the pack? How do you get attention from from people like uh, like PW or Kirkus mm-hmm. or what have Definitely. you? That that the the reviewers are the ones who are helping the readers select good fiction from the massive slush pile, which is the the huge pile of fiction available for purchase. At this now, do both of you try to keep up with current fiction in the field? I do. Um, they, I try. Well, I mean, uh, I, I don't feel that I succeed. This year, I'm I'm reading for an awards um, okay. jury myself, so it is um, it's a bit more complicated. But I try to read at least five stories a week, um, short stories, and sometimes I cheat and read Flash. Well, okay, how do you decide which five to read? I um, There are a couple of days on Twitter where people are recommending what they read, mm-hmm. and sometimes they're reading they're recommending novels, but occasionally they will recommend short stories. Uh-huh. Um, AC Wise has an excellent column in Apex called Women to Read, uh-huh. and I go and read some of her recommendations and follow some of those short story links. There is um, Charles Pazor has quick reviews where he reviews short fiction um, very quickly and I will go click on the links in his um, in his tweets uh-huh. and follow those um, quite often I will look at the locus um, you know the, 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 short the, fiction the reviews, reviews yeah. for, and, I'll, mm-hmm. and I'll find things through that but I'll also follow my friends recommendations um, mm-hmm. if somebody's read a good short story quite often there is a sort of a nudge hey you should read this for novels it's very similar but it's much louder. There, yes. is a, there is a huge groundswell. If you have mm-hmm. not read this novel, um, and that was happening for Ada Palmer's Too Like the Lightning, yeah. um, which is just an incredible book. 
and it is it was you know have you read this this is amazing yeah um, and that's and that's really um, uh, Kate and I were are always the people who are bringing books to the attention of our neighborhood book group because we're we're cued into the community between uh-huh. between reading locusts uh, following following you know the right people on Twitter. Um, to a lesser extent, other social media these days. Twitter seems to be where the action is. You know, you just you just keep your ears to the ground, and, and it's not that hard to see what's catching a lot of buzz in this facet of the community. In this the community, community. The community yeah. is so big that it has different facets. I mean, the people, I think the Strange Horizons people and the Analog people yeah. and the Lightspeed people, these are different subsets. And sometimes sometimes something is big enough to cross these lines. But I'd say that Strange Horizons is, is a very... It, it, I'm not saying that any of these is more representative or, or better. They're mm-hmm. different communities with different priorities. Strange Horizons is doing a really cool thing right now where they're doing tag team reviews. Mm. Yeah. And they have two reviewers reviewing the same book, and mm-hmm. that's very cool. That's delightful. I think it is it's something that occasionally locusts will do that as well. Uh, and it's not necessarily because people disagree on it. It's because sometimes a book is such impact that you want to just have that, and sometimes because people just happen to get the same book and want to review it. and, and, and But but we're all, in a sense, insiders. You mentioned this community. We're connected. We go to these conventions. We get to be on panels at conventions. And I, I'm wondering about the reader who may look at Strange Horizons and may look at, uh, may even read Locus, although not enough people read I would Locus. Not, I would not anticipate the average non-writer reader to read Locus at all. No, these days. Uh, Locus is a professional magazine yeah. to some extent. And, and Strange, the website, people will go and cruise the website. That's true, that. people will cruise the website. I'm, I've always been curious about how the, the novice reader, somebody who's started reading science fiction a couple of years ago and they found something they like, or they came into science fiction because... Neil Gaiman told them to read something. Uh, and where do they start these days? I was I started with the Best Of collections. I have so ah. many of Gardner's Best Of collections, mm. and that was where I first read your stories. I first read Michael Swamlick's stories. Mm. I first read some of Greg Frost's stories. Um, it was it was because he was he was collecting what really caught his attention, mm-hmm. um, and then I started reading online. Mm. And st- so um, Genevieve Valentine's. Uh, um, Oh, uh, bespoke, and then the the Jupiter story, um, something something for oh. stones. Wow, I'm so embarrassed. Sorry, yeah. Genevieve. But okay, but I'm uh, a bead of Jasper for yeah. small okay, stones. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Every, okay, so if you know, if you look into book marketing at all, you know that the number one way that people learn about books is recommendations yes. from friends. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. And um, and so that's certainly something that that Kate and I would do with our neighborhood book group. Yeah. We're the only people in our book group who are in fandom, and so we are the ones who can tell the book group these are the books that are catching a lot of buzz. Now, admittedly, the books that are catching a lot of buzz do not always wind up being popular. I mean, actually, nobody in our book uh, nobody in our book group liked uh, to like the lightning. Um, and what uh, did they like? Uh, honestly, they did like... Just they, parentheses, yeah. this must be a book group that's devoted to science fiction. It is fantasy. a science fiction. Not, not your average book group that's yeah. wondering, why aren't we reading James Patterson this month? Yeah, no, it okay. is It is a science fiction and fantasy book group. I but bet they loved Arabella. Martin. They actually did. Okay. <laughs> and, and, um, yeah, and, and it might have had something to do with the fact that the, the was, that was at, at my house. house. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, no, they, they seriously did love... Oh, everybody fell in love with uh, Ancillary, the Ancillary mm-hmm. series. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, that was one of the few that we actually went through and read the second and third books as as a book group. Yeah, um, yeah they loved Ancillary. They loved uh, Fifth Season. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, but anyway, so so we as people with our ears to the ground in genre are telling our friends who are less part of the community about these are the cool books you should be reading. When I was a technical writer, um, when I found out that like only one out of 20 people that use a software product ever reads the documentation. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. You know, that seems kind of disheartening at first, and then I realized it was an enormous responsibility because the people who do read the documentation are the ones who tell their friends about the features yeah. in the software. Yeah. So you've only uh-huh. got a 1 in 20 chance of reaching somebody who can tell everybody else around them how to use the software. So this makes the documentation even more important. That's a really good way to think yeah. about RTFM. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. So read, read the freaking manual. Read the <laughs> fine manual. Read, the, yeah. read uh, the funny manual. Yeah. So um, so yeah. So the the community is important in finding books in the slush 
and bringing to the atten- bringing them to the attention of the wider reading community. But the wider reading community is splintered, isn't it? I mean, let, let me just well, let, yeah, let me, so put me. you both on the spot now. Do the same audiences are the same audiences reading Updraft or reading Arabella? Are they different readerships? I think Updraft and Arabella are about as much overlap between readerships as any two books you might pick off the shelf right now. It just it just so happens. Well, they're fun. Yeah, well, and they're, they're fun. They're, they're both YA. They're both YA mm-hmm. adult crossover. Um, they both involve flight. Um, they both have um, both have wire protagonists. Would that be fair to say? Kieran, yes. Yeah. So and, and and so yeah. So those two books are really very similar in a way that, for example, neither of them is like uh, neither of them is like Fifth Season. Neither of them is like Ancillary Justice. Uh-huh. Neither of them is like. Um, to like the lightning, to like the lightning. Yeah. or uh, I mean, I mean, even you know, Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell is a Regency fantasy, as is Arabella, and yet, despite unless apart from the fact that I think people that enjoy the Regency would like both those books, the two books do not have a lot in common, either stylistically or in terms of subject matter. No, I can see that. There's a Regency. It's not the Regency romance, but there's a Regency. I don't know. Aesthetic, I guess. Zen Cho's Sorcerer to the Crown yes. is another Regency yes. novel, which is terrific. And uh, it's become... It's, it's not really even what the Regency romance romances were at some point. It's not really historical fiction. It's an attitude, more or less. Yes. It really is, uh, yeah. There's a... There's the, a number, the number of people who've, who've said how much they like my Victorian... You know, how great how great the Victorian era... The, you know, the, the, the research that, you know, I love the Victorian era. And... and, and Mary Robinette warned me that, that yeah, this people, is not, people will say people will say Victorian even well Victorian means actually scholars talk about the long 19th century which runs from the Regency period up to the beginning of World War II or something yeah and this I think culturally there's a, a sense that that's all one thing in some way yeah well the Regency really is if it weren't for Georgette Heyer I don't think we'd have the Regency as a, as an identifiable thing there's a very little known novel by, by by Gore Vidal of all people called Duluth, and it was one of his crazy late novels when he was writing completely surrealistically, because Duluth, Minnesota, has Canada five miles to the north and Mexico five miles to the south, and everything in the United States is compressed. And one of the characters in it, uh, this must be in the 70s, not long before he died, one of the characters in it is a very uninformed romance writer. Uh, who actually has her novels written for her by a computer? So she never uh, she never understood during the entire period of this novel that what she was writing were not in fact Hyatt Regency romances because she thought that's what they were. And I think there's a readership out there that Regency and Hyatt Regency in the 19th century are all kind of m- mixed up together in their minds. Not Hyatt Regency, Higher Regency. Higher, no, it's a, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, higher Regency. No, we're in a Hyatt Regency at the moment. <laughs> I think, though, I mean, one one thing that that you are jumping over a little bit with respect is uh-huh. the influence of magic on Regency period novels, because mm-hmm. instead of the traditional, mm-hmm. these these are all novels. With the exception that you've got science in place of magic, as I do mm-hmm. in Updraft, mm-hmm. um, that that I think it colors and and shifts um, the Regency awareness to a certain level that changes everything yeah. a little bit. And Mary's Mary Robinette's Kowal's yeah. books are excellent yeah. examples of that. And I think that I think that the Regency period is a little bit more amenable to the addition of fantasy than either the revolutionary period or the Victorian period that surrounded on either side. Why do you say that? Well, the, yeah. the Revolutionary War was all the Enlightenment, all about getting getting away from the gut feel and into the scientific management of, of, of human life. Mm-hmm. Um, the Victorian era was not science but engineering. Yeah. But in between the Enlightenment and the Industrial Age, there was a certain artistic whimsy in the Regency era. That, that the Regency the Regency era was actually the the very early echoes of what would become the Industrial Age, but it was still a time that there might be fairies in the woods. I think. Well, I think you're right. People tend to think of Regency period now almost entirely in terms of Jane Austen. But it was also the height of gothic novel, yes. uh, which was which was full of magic and ghosts and yes. so forth. And Jane Austen was well aware of that because of Northanger Abbey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think you're absolutely right that there was an implicit magic in the Regency period, which was uh, which was eventually supplanted by the kind of gritty realism of, of a lot of you know 
early Victorian things. Uh, uh, well, obviously Dickens, but uh, I mean Dick Dickens was the was the Sinclair Lewis of his day. Right. Well, exactly. that's, that's the resurgence of the didactic novel, though. That is, mm-hmm. that's when you come back into here. Mm-hmm. We're going to tell you how to behave. So oh, nothing didactic in Austin. Well, right. oh yeah, okay, fine. Well, <laughs> but there was a bit of magic. Ironic didacticism is different yes, from prescriptive didacticism. Uh, Thank you. There Thank was a you. there was a novel Charles Reed, who was a very popular Victorian novelist, who written best known for the Cloister and the Hearth, had actually written a novel about prison reform called "It Is Never Too Late to Mend." Now, that okay, that can just apply to any Victorian novel that says there's anything wrong with society. And they were they were very preachy. Dickens did the same thing in Hard Times, but. Uh, when Austin does that, it's so gentle and ironic and uh, understated that a lot of people don't know they're being reformed while they're right. reading it. Mm-hmm. But when you read Bleak House, you when know you that Ble- the yeah, indictment exactly, of the exactly, legal system right, is written. Exactly. So, uh, so, so I guess the question is, uh, okay, you, we've, rent, we've introduced the idea of magic, and that has to come back to talk about updraft. <laughs> so. I get busted, um, and I think it was Max Gladstone who said it first uh-huh. that there's no magic in your book; it's all engineering. Mm-hmm. And I said, "That's that's right. There's magic in my book; that it's all engineering." I find bridges and and wings and anything that we can make and put together pretty pretty amazingly magical. In mm-hmm. that, um, it's a it's a technical construct that allows us to do things that we couldn't do before. We can cross a large um, body of water using a bridge. We can cross. We can fly. Using wings, I do, yeah. and and that gets me back to the presentation that I did here at World Fantasy, which was two thousand years of man-made wing history, mm-hmm. which is for the first big chunk of time a lot of falling and a lot of <laughs> yeah, sure, obviously, yeah. <laughs> and, well, yeah, and, for two thousand years the wing the wing was a myth. Not necessarily all the way through. There are um, some there's some evidence about a sixteenth century gentleman um, named Hisarin Shalabi, I think I don't have my mm-hmm. notes in front of me, who um, flew from a tower in Turkey. And across the river, he flew about a mile, or a hmm. little bit under a mile, and then he was banished because he was scary. Um, and the, uh-huh. the, the ruler at the time gave him a bag of gold and banished him to Algeria because they thought he was too powerful. But if you think about that, that would be an amazing alternate history mm-hmm. for, for that period in that time. He did one thing that all of the other people who had been j- progressively jumping off of higher and higher towers with wings strapped to their hands yeah. and feet or wings you know, attached to their back. There's a, um, a monk in uh, England named Eleanor of Malmesbury who has a stained glass window um, that of him holding wings that look oddly like Da Vinci wings. Um, and, you know, all of these people would jump off these towers and, you know, go about 200 meters and then drop precipitously and break both legs. Observe how they do not so much fly as plummet. They, I was going to say, there's a lot of falling with style. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's all because they don't pick their feet up. And so one of the things that I learned in my research was it's really good to have a method of picking your feet up. So if you look at the modern wingsuit flyers today, they their suits automatically pick their, fain, their feet up so that they oh. can be flying on a plane. Mm-hmm. And if you look at someone like Otto Lillenhammer, who was making gliders at the same time as the Wright brothers, he's the glider king. He was the, uh-huh. he, That was his brand, his personal brand. Um, he's doing a lot of seated flying, and some of the Da Vinci models are also seated flyers. But when you get to the, the plane gliding, um, it's much more successful. And we were getting very close to having working efficient gliders when the um, when the motor was invented and planes took over. Mm-hmm. The question of whether that is fantasy or science fiction, I think, is an interesting one. Yes. I mean, everybody. Well, uh, another example besides updraft is, is, is Ken Liu's uh, first novel. Yeah. Uh, and it, it involves kites. It involves war kites. It mm-hmm. involves an alternate technology, which is theoretically possible. But because there weren't actually those kites being used in warfare, people read it as fantasy. So is fantasy sometimes no more than an alternate technology? Oh, the, the fantasy and science fiction are really... Are, yeah, I, I, the, the example that I always use is at Disneyland, there are two rides. There's Dumbo the Flying Elephant, which is flying elephants that go around. Yeah. And there's Astro Orbiter, which is rocket ships that go around. They are the same ride, okay, okay exactly. with different paint jobs, and that is the difference between fantasy and science fiction. Okay, I will I will disagree about the flying elephant theory. Mm-hmm. 
Um, because I think that when you get back to something like um, Grace of Kings and yeah. Wall of Storms as well, the, the idea of um, the, the silk kites, they, they were being used in battle, but they weren't being used as attack elements. They were being used, they would... Um, espionage. Well, yeah, not just as espionage, but Ken has a, a citation from one of his pieces of research, because I, I interviewed him for oh, this okay. presentation, where um, one of the one of the kings of the period would put up singers on kites, and they would sing to the enemy to dispute them as they came in, Singers. which is just really oh, amazing. Cool. Yeah. Um, but I, it's funny because when Ken and I talk about this, people have been um, talking about Skyfy. There's a lot of oh, yeah. flying um, and uh, grace. Of, well, he calls it silk punk. He calls it silk mm-hmm. punk. Other people have, have called it wing punk. Um, and right. um, we, we have done a couple of engineering panels. We did one at ReaderCon last year, mm-hmm. which was Ken and me and John Chu and Scott Andrews and a couple of other people talking about the engineering that goes into the fantastical. Because you can't have an epic fantasy, and this was pointed out by Sarah, Sarah Mueller, mm-hmm. um, where it's Sarah Mueller, that um, you can't have an epic fantasy without a grain mill to grind the grain for bread. Mm-hmm. And so all engineering and all fantasy requires engineering at some level, which is I think, cool. Yeah, and I think it comes so down no, to... it's not just Dumbo. I, I, think, I think it all comes down to the attitude that in science fiction, uh, in science fiction, the characters look at the world as comprehensible. And fantasy, the characters do not necessarily look at the world as comprehensible. And you can have a fantasy with a with with a science fictional attitude, and that's what that's what I see in Game of Thrones, for example. Um, Game of Thrones is a fantasy. There is magic. Yeah. There are dragons, yeah. but the people in the world do not view it as numinous. Um, whereas, uh, so so, and there are plenty of. Uh, you know, Jack Vance uh, fantasy yeah. is very is a very very noble world. It's all the the magic here is formulaic. Um, I'd say Harry Potter is more a knowable magic system rather than be rather than emphasizing the numinous the way um, China Mieville mm-hmm. emphasizes the numinous even in works like um, Perdido Street like Perdido Station. Street Station. Perdido Street Station is science fictional in terms of having you know having the technologies mm-hmm. in the in the foreground but the characters look on it as a numinous world but well, the, but the actual remade and and the freemade of Perdido Street Station are very science fictional in their reconstruction. But They're technological, you, but you can't actually do that with technology. <laughs> you know? Well, you can do it with thaumaturgy, so it's totally fine. Right. And everything everything in uh, in in Baslog is a mixture of science and magic. Yes. And you're not sure where the where the, where the line is. Yes. You're not sure where the magic exactly. begins. Yeah. I mean, because one of the things that Ted Chang has argued all along is that if he writes a science fiction story which is completely set in the world of Babylonian mythology or, mm-hmm. or, or, or Jewish mysticism, it's still a science fiction story because he's rigorously following the scientific view of the world in that worldview. That's true. Uh, and, and, and Tower of, of Babylon, for example... Is, is a science fiction story as it would have been written by a Babylonian. Yeah. Uh, and, and it follows the rules. And you're right, the numinous is the, mis- the mysterious, the unattainable, the, yeah. the, the, whatever is beyond us. And, uh, the, I mean, it's what, uh, actually, David Hartwell, who we all miss at this year's World Fantasy, coined a term in the post-Fritz Leiber era of what he called sword and sorcery procedurals. And he's exactly right. They were police procedurals, except the rules were sword and sorcery. They were magic rules, but yeah. you just basically had, and we've had supernatural detectives yeah. doing the same kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, Garrett and... So, and um, Dresden. Yeah, yeah, yeah Dresden. Dresden. Uh, even uh-huh. even uh, Terry Pratchett wrote some sword and sorcery procedurals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah, I mean, he did all sorts of genres within the Discworld framework. To go back to the Harry Potter point, though, mm-hmm. it has been pointed out that in the books of Harry Potter, and this might be corrected within, you know, just three months of the, mm-hmm. the podcast going out, but there is no school of engineering to design the magical tools and elements like the Time Turners. You don't see that yet. Mm-hmm. You don't see well, the production you can, facility. You can assume its existence, but it's never on the <laughs> Probably there. It would be very yeah. interesting to see that. I would love to see how they make those things. Yeah. Well, how many rejected stories are about the magical gizmo helpline? 
you know. Um, well, it's, yeah. it's an over. It's an overdone Not a mile. show. Right? <laughs> very, few, very few of them get published because because there are far too many of them that are that are only that are only mildly funny. But um, this is this is why for a little while, and we, you were talking about flush before. The slush piles were filled with virtual reality mm-hmm. because you could write a fantasy story that was set within a science fictional world using virtual reality. Yeah, exactly. And and it was it was sort of the it was all a dream of the late nineties. Well, there was also a kind of psychological fiction that uh, has been done both by science fiction and fantasy writers, thinking they were doing different things. And it is, it is a world that takes place inside someone's mind. Yes. Yes. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a short story called The Shoddy Lands, which takes place inside the mind of a very vain young teenage girl. I guess he didn't like teenage girls. But then Philip K. Dick wrote... Um, Just about everything. Well, everything. <laughs> but, but there was one called Eye in the Sky, where through some bizarre science fiction uh, device, some kind of a, a, a super cyclotron, I forget, betatron, uh, they somehow end up in each other in the world of each other's minds. Mm-hmm. For example, one of the characters is a, is, is a fundamentalist woman uh, who's every time you say a lie, a flock of starvings, of, of, of ravens comes down and pecks out your eyes, and this sort of thing. Uh, and Dick, who I don't think really necessarily always knew the difference between personal fantasy and science fiction, uh, was writing this through a science fictional kind of uh, framework. There's a machine that causes this to happen. And C.S. Lewis writing a story with the same plot was just—it was just magic. Yeah, or religious. Right, or religious. Me, that brings me around to the peripheral. If uh-huh. you read uh, Gibson's peripheral, which is yeah, exactly. I mean, that is the that that we're you know one world is existing with it as a stub possibility world of another mm-hmm. within another world, which is and when when they cross. They cross using a very specific type of technology that lets them exist in the other world. It's a really cool concept. It's, it's one of the things I've noticed that, and, and, and steampunk may have had something to do with the sort of merging of fantasy and science fiction and tropes as well. But um, and Gibson certainly knew this was happening. But um, certain impossibilities have entered into the world of science fiction time travel, telepathy, and so forth. Things that we now know to be impossible, but science fiction is not going to let science them go. Science fiction is accepted faster than light travel. Faster than light travel, you have a... Well, unless you're Werner Vinci, and then you use it to write an elaborate joke about the three levels of faster well, than that's light. that's true, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is that there's there's nothing that's so subtle that somebody can't can't reexamine it in a, in a new light. But still, you know, you've got your your kind of default science fiction universe. It includes all sorts of things like aliens who can interbreed. You know, things things that are yeah, no no that's a fantasy. Yeah. And, and Arabella. Um, so the Arabella verse, my my, I, which I call the Newton's bubble universe. Um, the original okay. idea that I had was that I would start off with one impossibility, which I was going to fill the solar system with air mm-hmm. and have everything else that followed from that be hard science fiction. It turns out that that's not actually the case. You can't actually make it function. Uh-huh. And so, bit by bit, all of the all of the things that were not really possible in a scientific sense were, were hand-waved over. And eventually, I finally had to say, okay, this is actually a fantasy, but I'm going to continue to write it with a science fictional attitude. So that's the kind of book it feels like. It feels science fictional. All the technology that people use to react to this impossible world feels science fictionally because I expose I expose the, well they aren't rivets because everything yeah. is made of wood but still all of all of the all of the knots and fastenings um, and 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 pulleys are all visible so it feels science fictional even though the universe is fundamentally fantastical and there are a few things that happen in it that are inexplicable by by anything resembling technology and I think that detail um, mm-hmm. helps carry the level of fantastical over in in books that can sort of span the gap mm-hmm. between the two with updraft I did so much weather research and so much yeah, wind research of... and and also the all of the engineering and the bone research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there, are, me, but there are monsters. Yeah, to in me, that the fantastical movie. element of updraft is the, is the bone towers. Possibly, mm-hmm. but there are also giant, invisible, flying, carnivorous cephalopods. And in order for those to work and be believable, the wind has to be right, and the clouds have to function. Mm-hmm. And those, I mean, I love making monsters. Monsters are, are so much fun for me because you take a familiar element and then you sort of embiggen it and make it expansive and that for me is something that goes towards the both the science fiction aspect and the but but there's an archaic element to that too the mystery of of the heights the kind of thing there actually was an Arthur Conan Doyle story called The Horror of the Heights 
which was about, probably wrote about 1912, I'm going to guess, or maybe before that, when ballooning, high-altitude ballooning was just being experimented with, and somebody discovers that there are air demons yes. if you go high enough. Uh-huh. It was... It, it, it was he was it's about the same time he wrote when the world when the world screamed, which is about digging what amounts to a molehole project, and you finally there's a moment a, 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 there's, a, there's, a, exactly, there's a living membrane down there. Uh, what do, I wonder what you'd say though when you talk about this kind of fantastical uh, narrative uh, that, that that David, when somebody comes to you and says, "Oh, well, of Mars," is that just like Edgar Rice Burroughs? Well, no, uh, and the thing the thing is is that Edgar Rice in Edgar Rice Burroughs's world, you can get from Earth to Mars just by wishing. Well, yeah, you know, that there are a lot of elements of. I mean, Edgar Edgar Rice Burroughs. That's just teleportation. But it's just. <laughs> but, but, it's, but he doesn't even hand wave. He doesn't even hand wave. Yeah. Just boom, you know, he's there. Burroughs Burroughs is you know it's a fairy tale as much as anything else. You know, it's set on on an imagination of Mars. And Burroughs helped to establish the kind of science fiction mm-hmm. of default Mars and science fiction of default Venus, which I'm deliberately riffing off. Sure. But I'm actually riffing off of... I don't I don't count Burroughs as a direct ancestor of Arabella, but I'm riffing off of Northwest Smith, okay. who was in go. turn... Riffing, riffing off, off of, 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 of Burroughs, you know, you know. So I'm. This is this is. Um, I mean, even though it's set in the 1800s, this is really a pulp universe rather than yeah. and rather than an, an 1800s universe because people's ideas of what the solar system was like in the time of, uh, for example, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of space travel. You look at you look at Cervantes. Um, you mm-hmm. look at um, uh, uh, well, the, not the Marquis Moon, de Sade. Edward Everett Hale's yes. Brick Moon, yeah, eighteen fifty-seven or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I yeah. That um, not not the Marquis de Sade. Who am I thinking? Uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the thing is, is that 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 science that what we would call science fiction. It's very different from from the science fiction that came along later because it's a lot more allegorical. Whereas, I agree. Whereas. It's okay. So, so um, Cervantes and um, and uh, and the Bergerac, uh, the Bergerac's view of the world, it, view of of the of the planets, is more an allegory. Whereas by the time you get up to Norris Smith, it's more in the tradition of the jungle and island adventure pulps, you know. And so that's and and so they're. The, the Jungle and Island Adventure pulps, I believe, are an extension of the seafaring tales of the 1800s, mm. including Treasure Island and um, and, and uh, Robinson Crusoe. Which, in turn, are probably versions of older Prester John stories from the Middle Ages. Yeah. Maybe, so, yeah. I once, I once read an essay in some fanzine called The Science Fiction Archipelago. It is not the essay of a similar title by... Um, 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 anyway. Okay. Um, the Science Fiction Archipelago, which traced... All of the tropes of the default science fiction universe, um, especially Star Trek, back to the seafaring tales of the 1800s. Uh-huh. If you look at how long it takes to get from one star system to another, if you look at the, the conventions oh, yes. of yeah. a single a single climate, a single language, a single culture, a single religion, um, the idea that the starship captain is, is is effectively completely independent of control from back home, the idea that it's faster to send a person than to send a signal, all of these things are seafaring ideas. That's interesting. Just transplanted oh. into space. And I would love to find... I, I cannot take credit for this idea. I would love to find the original essay. I've never been able to track it down. I'd like to see that too. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting listening to both of you talk and having talked to both of you over the years separately is that you, you, you both know a lot about the history of science fiction. You've read a lot about it. I mean, we're not going to be talking about C.L. Moore to people who uh, haven't, you know, familiarized themselves with the pulp tradition. But there are a lot of people entering the field who have never read anything. Uh, who don't? Uh, there, there are newer science fiction writers in the tradition of David Eddings. Well, okay. <laughs> and I actually think that's okay, and I, I go back to jazz with uh-huh. that because I don't, I don't think at this point that you can, and, and I'm paraphrasing a, a favorite song, but I don't think that you can be expected to know all the Charlie Parker licks no, in order absolutely. to understand science. You know, science fiction is <laughs> it's so important to be able to read broadly, but there's so much happening now. The the thing that you miss when you're not reading back is you miss the conversation that we're having I think with that's the true. past. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely possible to enjoy the field and even be well-read in the field without knowing the kind of history that we're talking about right now. Oh, yeah, and I, I think one of the things that does intimidate people is to think, 
And there are fans who will say, well, you have no right to talk about science fiction if you haven't read all of Olaf Stapledon and Heinlein and Asimov and Clark and that sort of thing. But there's another thing that works, and I want to ask you both about your non-science fiction reading, because there's a wonderful essay by Ursula Le Guin in her new collection of essays called Words Are My Matter, uh, in which she talks a little bit about Margaret Atwood and other writers and saying you can't write a good science fiction story if you've never read a science fiction story. But you can't write a good science fiction story if you've read only science fiction stories. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what else? We've got we've got like two minutes before we have to wrap up here, and we all we're, we're at a convention. We all have dinner plans. What do you read that isn't science fiction? I was I was a science and engineering writer for a long time, mm-hmm. so I read um, hard, I read hard science writing. Um, but I really like certain writers like David Quammen, who wrote Song of the Dodo. And um, there's one of my favorite books. It's ridiculous, but um, it's called Annals of the Former World by John McPhee, and is about oh, yeah. it, it, it is it is the um, ge- the history of the geology of the United States as told by road cuts. Mm-hmm. And that sort of thing is always in my reading. I try to get one or two, um, at, at least a year, just big, thick science books. Um, the Building of the Brooklyn Bridge mm-hmm. is one of my favorites, and the story of the Roebling family. Yeah. So I just getting... Yeah, yeah, McPhee, McPhee is, is great. fantastic, but also um, there are some newer authors coming out that you can read in Outside Magazine, or that you can read in some of the um, the, the New Scientist journals mm-hmm. and, and other things, even in The Economist, um, and Wired has some great science books oh, yeah, as well. And it's just, just picking those up and continuing reading about new technology is one of the things that I love to do. Okay, David, in one minute. A uh, huge fan of Patrick O'Brien, okay. um, which obviously yeah. flavors flavors our ballot quite a bit. Um, nonfiction, uh, John McPhee is good. Um, I love, uh, he did the one about oranges, yeah. He did a long essay on oranges yeah. for the New York, which um, I think became a book. Yeah, um, which I would love to see an update of that. Um, the Mary Roach yeah, um, do, doing excellent, excellent nonfiction right now. Um, Henry Petrosky, uh, the history of the pencil. The history of the pencil, among others. What writes writes what what uh, what my wife would call things about stuff. Mm-hmm. Books about stuff. Books about stuff are fun. Um, you know, a whole book about the pencil. Seriously, yes, and it's, right. and it's tons of fun. Um, so yeah, I don't read a lot of fiction outside of SF and fantasy, but nonfiction uh, and history. You know, history is the secret. It's amazing how many writers I talk to that read mostly nonfiction, mm-hmm. uh, because you want to get ideas, you want to get facts, you want to get. You want to get to dinner because it's time for us to quit. We have to shut down and go off and do our world fantasy things. So, again, I would like to thank uh, David Levine and Fran Wilde, uh, Arabella of Mars, Updraft, and now Cloudbound. Yes. And the third one is going to be Horizon. Horizon. Okay, great. Thank Thanks you so much. Okay. And yes, and Arabella, uh, Arabella of Mars will be followed by Arabella and the Battle of Venus in uh, July of 2017, and then to be followed by a third book, uh, currently tentatively titled Arabella and the Regent of Earth 2018. Thank you for joining us, and Jonathan will be back with us next week, and we'll have another Crude Street podcast. Until then, this is Gary Wolf. Thanks. Thank you. That looks fine. I hope it. I hope. And, and, and,